This is the Questions for the Sages podcast. I'm Michael Scherer. Today's podcast episode is like the original episode in some ways. It's not an interview, but rather some discussion about myself and what I'm doing at the Hare Krishna Temple. You can hear the Questions for the Sages podcast on questionsforthesages.com, the Questions for the Sages Facebook page, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Thanks to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland, for making this podcast possible. Hi, this is Michael Scherer, the host of the Questions for the Sages podcast. Today, the podcast is one year old. The first episode appeared on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, 2017. And today is Monday, January 15th of the year 2018. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So a happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day to all of you. This is a very significant and important American holiday, not one to overlook. And I think that uh, putting out a you know the first podcast episode of the year on this day is uh, is an auspicious thing. I think it's a it's a it's a good thing. And what I do in this podcast is, for the most part, I interview uh, people at the Hare Krishna Temple in Potomac, Maryland, uh, which is in the Washington D.C. area. So there's a community around this temple, this Hare Krishna temple. And I go among that community and ask people if they'd be willing to do an interview. And I ask them what they're doing there and how they got there and what are their plans and aspirations. And it's been very interesting and uh, fulfilling and... Uh, you know, I feel a lot of gratitude uh, at being able to talk to so many devotees. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor, really. And over time, many people have said, well, Mike, you're asking all these people all these questions. You know, where are they from? How did they get here? What are they doing there? Uh, what's your story? And uh, I thought I would in this first episode of the year, uh, address that a little bit. Today, actually, this episode isn't an interview. It's just me. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, I just wanted to uh, explain a little bit about what I'm doing here. Uh, you know, what am I, what am I up to? Uh, I thought you might like to know. Um, and I guess I should start by saying uh, what I do here. I, I go, for the most part, every Sunday, I go to the Hare Krishna Temple. Um, I had been uh, peripherally involved in ISKCON in Chicago in the late 90s. And... Uh, I used to work in a health food store at Clark and Diversity in Chicago on the north side. And um, 
There was a sort of a, a hippie girl uh, who also worked in the store. I worked in the produce department, and um, she used to go to the Hare Krishna temple, and she noticed that when the vegetables started to turn, we threw them away. And so she told the people at the Hare Krishna uh, temple about this because she used to eat the prasadam on Sundays there, that uh, maybe they could use that produce. So the Hare Krishna started showing up at the health food store where I was working in the produce department, and so we started to just give our uh, expired vegetables to them. And there was a devotee named Sarvo, who I believe has passed, but I'm not sure, um, who gave me a Bhagavad Gita. And when I read the Bhagavad Gita, he gave me the Bhagavad Gita as it is, which is Srila Prabhupada's translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And when I read it, uh, it immediately... I immediately recognized it as uh, uh, being of a a level of literature that was beyond um, what one normally encounters. Being a reader, someone who really, really likes to read, uh, and having some familiarity with the Bible and with the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, I could sort of recognize the, the weight of the Bhagavad Gita. You know, this is something of, um, it's like a mountain in terms of its significance. So, you know, I recognized that. And so I started to go to the temple and um, sort of just become peripherally involved. Uh, but I decided at a certain point that I needed to go to India to check it out because I needed to know what was going on in India uh, before I sort of formally committed to this thing in America because as far as I was concerned, it was an Indian export to America. In some ways, that's certainly true. Uh, in some ways, there is a transcendental element, but I'll get to that later. Um, I went to Mayapur and I went to Vrindavan. And when I was in Vrind when I was in Mayapur in 1999, uh, I got sick, and I had been chanting 16 rounds for uh, probably a year and a half without fail. I was. Um, pretty committed. But I got sick in Mayapur, and something happened. I completely lost my taste for chanting. It was sudden, and it was kind of shocking. And I didn't know what had happened. And I didn't know... Well, I assumed I must have uh, offended somebody. And that's probably the best explanation I can come up with for what happened. I must have really ticked somebody off who was probably in a humble station, but very advanced. Uh, like I say, I'm, I'm speculating. 
I don't know. When I returned from this trip, I was, um, I realized that the Indian culture is complicated, vast, ancient, and I don't belong to it. So, um, I thought it was a little, uh, presumptuous of me to, to try to become a Brahmin in a culture that I didn't understand and had no past with and no history with. I am an American, and I know what your first response is if you're a Hare Krishna. No, you're not an American. You are a spirit soul. You are not your body. Well, that's true. But that doesn't make untrue the importance of understanding the body that I have and what it's for. I have to think of myself in society and functioning as a part of that society and contributing to that society as well as understanding myself as a spirit soul, as not being the body. Those two have to go together, I believe. So anyway, I got back from India, and I thought I would... Well, it made sense at the time to explore my ancestral heritage and religious heritage, which was Roman Catholic. Uh, so uh, I started working at an abbey, and it was a Benedictine abbey. Uh, it's uh, St. Anselm's Abbey, actually, near Providence Hospital. Now, this is a... The Abbey is a... It's like a big house, more like a hotel in terms of size, in which priests and monks live. They wear black, uh, and they do something interesting five times a day, I believe. I believe that's how many. Uh, there are pews... Pews are like benches that you sit on in, in a Catholic church. They face each other. So you look at the altar, uh, you know, as a congregant, as someone going to church there, and you see the monks and the priests facing each other in front of you. And they go back and forth reciting the Psalms. I think it's just the Psalms and maybe other prayers too. But one side says, you know, a verse, the next side says the next verse, and they go back and forth. It's sort of a, it's like call and response, but there's an equal number of callers and responders. And, uh, you know, that was, it was, it was um, interesting, the whole Abbey thing, but it was also uh, depressing. There wasn't joy. Uh, not that I could tell. And um, I was there to examine it, really, playing with the notion of becoming a monk, but it, I, it never really... I couldn't really go that route. Um, I didn't see joy there. And in fact, it's pretty bleak. Now, there are other Catholic uh, uh, orders in the D.C. area because when they built Catholic University, there was an invitation and probably some tax exemptions or something for 
all of the Catholic orders in the United States to set up shop around Catholic universities. So uh, you've got the Franciscans with their beautiful church and gardens. Uh, you have the Augustinians, the Dominicans with their um, library. They're the uh, a preaching order, so they're highly educated, and uh, they practice preaching. And uh, they wear white, by the way. Uh, and um, <laughs> I don't know if that matters. Franciscans wear brown. Augustinians wear black. Uh, so everyone's got their... Each order has its uniform. You know, that's how they look. So, yeah, there were quite a few adventures there at the Abbey. But um, I eventually felt like I, I sort of grew out of it. And uh, I was left nowhere, really. Uh, I think religious life is important to me, uh, by design. I didn't choose it. Uh, it's just how I work. And, you know, I, I started to get pretty depressed. Uh, and when I say pretty depressed, I'm talking about, I'm just jumping ahead, uh, more than 10 years to 2013, and I was not sure what I was going to do for New Year's Eve. And I read about a New Year's Eve celebration at the, at the Hare Krishna temple. And I thought, well, it's been over 10 years since I've been to it. And why not? So I went. Now, first of all, I, I, I have to admit I was surprised that it was still going. Uh, part of my mind had thought, well, this movement, this Hare Krishna movement, it, it's just not going to last. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised that it was still going on, that there was a, a, a vibrant community, and I had a really nice time at the New Year's Eve celebration. It was really a beautiful event. So... I thought, well, why not? I'm sort of, I'm between religions at the moment. Why not uh, start coming back here? And uh, so I started to come back on, on Sundays, and um, something happened. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an audio guy. I'm actually sitting right now in my recording booth at work, where I sit most of the day uh, reading audiobooks for blind people uh, through the Library of Congress NLS program, National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. So I'm always working around audio, um, and it, uh, somehow I ended up controlling the, um, the mixer for the, for the recordings. Well, it developed into the recordings and the kirtans, and um, I think we've come a long way. Uh, there's, there's plenty more to go in terms of, uh, just smoothing everything out, just, uh, making everything work better. Uh, that's something that I'm working on and has very much to do with what it is I'm up to here at the temple. I say here at the temple, I'm actually at work, but anyway, um, so I started coming back and I just kept coming back, uh, it sort of, um, fills a need, you know, uh, 
It's it's a it's a very nice community, uh, uh, highly varied. There's a there's a lot of different kinds of people. There's a lot of different reasons for people to be there, and um, I find it very satisfying satisfying to feel like when I go there on Sunday, I'm contributing something, uh, and what I'm contributing is my. Uh, sound work, you know, so getting the, getting the lectures recorded and trying to make everything sound nice, doing my best. I'm, you know, I'm not that naturally talented, but I do have a, um, interest in the, in the subject. So, so here I am, uh, showing up every Sunday to this community and, um, last year started this podcast and so people are are asking well what 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 am i really doing here so so to explain that first i'm going to have to ask you a question have you ever read the hobbit by j r r tolkien uh famous book you've probably heard of the movie i don't recommend the movie Simply because if you watch the movie, you'll be deprived of Tolkien's prose. He's a great writer. Fantastic. If you watch the movie, you're missing the writing. Um, anyway, uh, The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, th- there is going to be a spoiler here. I hope you don't mind. But towards the end of The Hobbit, there is a dragon. And his name is Smog. Such a great name, Smog. There is, I, I can't imagine a better name for a dragon. But anyway, the dragon is menacing a city. And in fact, he's not menacing it, he's destroying it. But it, it doesn't happen immediately. Apparently, uh, a dragon, it takes a while to burn down a city. So uh, I, think, I think this is happening over a period of days, and there's nothing anyone can do. Uh, the dragon is covered in impenetrable scales. He breathes fire, and uh, he's flying. So, so what are you going to do? However, there's a king in this book who has two things. First, he has some information. The information is that smog's impenetrable armor his impenetrable scales that um cover him completely uh contains a glitch there is a break in the symmetry there is a scale missing on smog's breast and that missing scale possibly can be exploited. The other thing the king has is a quiver of arrows. And among these arrows, there's a very special arrow that has never missed its target. And that arrow, of course, is the black arrow. So he knocks his bow raises his aim upward, and kills the dragon. 
Now, uh, I would assume that pretty much everyone listening uh, has seen the first Star Wars movie. And when I say the first Star Wars movie, I mean the first Star Wars movie that appeared in theaters in the 1970s. Uh, it was groundbreaking in many ways because it was a fairy tale in space. Uh, but it was it was so well done. Uh, I'm assuming you've seen it. And if you remember, the antagonist of the story is sort of it's it's Darth Vader, but actually it's the Death Star. The Death Star is basically the size of a small planet, and it's just a way for the Empire to blow up other planets. It's it's a Death Star. The name says it all. And the Rebellion is fighting the Empire, and they need to disable the Death Star, or they're in big trouble, or their planets are going to start getting blown up. So, of course, Luke Skywalker flies his X-Wing through a, like a canal, a ductwork canal on the surface of the, uh, the Death Star. And what does he have? He has two things, like the king. The reason the rebels launched this attack on the Death Star is because they had a piece of information. There was a flaw in the design. It was possible to access the core of the Death Star through the ductwork. This is a design flaw, a glitch, an exploit. The other thing Luke Skywalker has is the Force. He's, he's, uh, he's unnaturally talented in the use of the Force. So you combine his information about the flaw and his use of the Force and this little tiny, tiny X-Wing destroys the Death Star. So I tell you these two stories in order to switch to something on a, on a little bit of a higher level. I'm not making a comparison here. Uh, but in the Srimad Bhagavatam, there is a very profound story about an exploit. And like I say, this is on a completely higher level than pop culture. But there are some important similarities here that I want to hone in on. Now, the exploit has to do with Hiranyakashipu. If you don't know who Hiranyakashipu is, you can find his story in the seventh canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. If you are unfamiliar with the Srimad Bhagavatam, then um, some of the things I say here might not completely make sense just because you're unfamiliar with the story. I suggest reading it, although you're not supposed to read it out of place, so you got to start at Canto 1. Read up to the seventh canto to, to, to get what I'm uh, about to talk about. Hiranyakashipu was the greatest demon of all time. And he had armor that couldn't be penetrated. But this was a different kind of armor. Hiranyakashipu's armor 
was a contract, an agreement. The grantor of the contract was Lord Brahma, the first living entity in this universe. Hiranyakashipu was able to, I guess you could say negotiate, a contract with Lord Brahma. Hiranyakashipu says to Lord Brahma, Please let me not meet death from any of the living entities created by you. Grant me that I not die within any residence or outside any residence, during the daytime or at night, nor on the ground or in the sky. Grant me that I not be killed by anything you've created, by no weapon, no human being or animal. Grant me that I not meet death from any entity, living or non-living. That's Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 7, Chapter 3, Verses 36 to 38. So Hiranyakashipu makes that request, and to the horror of everyone present, Lord Brahma says, Sure, okay, we'll do it. The contract was confirmed. But it's very interesting that although Hiranyakashipu was so well protected by this contract about the circumstances of his death, that this contract contained a flaw, an exploit, a glitch. The realization or recognition of this glitch uh, basically coincided with Hiranyakashipu's death. As soon as the flaw was realized in his contract and demonstrated, he died. It was over. Hiranyakashipu was killed by Lord Narsimhadev. Lord Narsimhadev is half man, half lion. So he's not a human, and he's not an animal. Hiranyakashipu was killed at sunset, which is neither day or night. The instruments of death were Lord Narsimhadev's nails, which can be called living or dead. And he died in the doorway of the assembly hall, not within and not without a residence. And because Lord Narsimhadev is Vishnu, he could be said to be an entity, but he could also said to not be an entity. So Hiranyakashipu was killed. His armor, his contract, was exploited because of this flaw that... Vishnu could sort of manifest its error. So, we have this um, recurring pattern of a terrible evil besetting society. And yet in the personification of that terrible evil, there usually seems to be some sort of exploit some sort of flaw that can be taken advantage of in a good way. Now, we live in the material world, which is a construct, and I think that the material world that we live in has an exploit. In some ways, it's not different than smog, the Death Star, or even Hiranyakashipu himself. And 
by my way of thinking, the exploit of the material world is kirtan. Now, of course, Hare Krishnas, people who have been in the movement, who understand what's going on there, will hear this and say, well, yeah, of course. But I don't think society at large knows this. And part of the point of ISKCON is to make this known to society at large. So one question to ask here is, why isn't it working? Why is ISKCON shrinking? Why hasn't Harinam taken over and spread through the culture? Um, when we ask that question, and, and, you know, I'm talking just for myself. I don't represent anybody. I'm not uh, accredited with any institution. These are just my thoughts. It seems to me that kirtan itself has to be cultivated. Uh, there has to be regular kirtan gatherings in the same way that if you have a plant, it really benefits from regular watering. It's just going to grow that way. And, you know, when I talk at this point, I may sound like I'm frustrated with the state of um, the kirtan culture at the Hare Krishna temple. But frustration isn't really right, I don't think. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful kirtan at the Hare Krishna temple is beautiful, wonderful, fantastic. I'm speaking out of a desire to spread this further and asking, why hasn't it spread further? I'm sure the potential is there. And, and we're in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. I mean, we're, we're within easy driving distance of the most powerful people in the world today. You know, why aren't they coming? Where are they? I think they will come as the quality of the kirtans in Potomac, Maryland, deepen in intensity, improve in quality, improve in professionalism, in respectfulness, in effort. And, uh, you know, one thing that came home to me really uh, at the latest New Year's Eve celebration, which was uh, 15 days ago, uh, 2017, the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, was that when things aren't working right, there's a, a tendency to assume it's because people aren't behaving correctly. But that's not always a very uh, productive way of looking at it. If things aren't working properly, you have a design problem. And I think that kirtan isn't spreading into 
the Western culture and into the capital, America's capital, because of some design issues that can be attended to without too much problem. And so uh, that sort of wish, well, first of all, that understanding of Kirtan as somehow fundamentally exploiting a flaw in the material world. What is, what is an artificial intelligence going to do with the Hare Krishna mantra? How is it going to understand it? Now, I, can, I think we all can assume that artificial intelligences have already encountered the Maha Mantra. Uh, we could actually find out what their reaction was to it. How do artificial intelligences respond to and understand the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra? And you may think, well, who cares? But actually, the world is changing quickly, and this is actually important. You know, we're in a society that's increasingly run by algorithms. Everyone thought that the robots were going to come and, and take over. The robots haven't taken over. The algorithms have. And it's it's certainly conceivable that that an algorithm or a combination of the combinations of algorithms that go into artificial intelligences will decide, well, you know, it's better for society if, if um, the Maha Mantra not appear in public and can prevent it from from reaching any digital platform. Um, that's conceivable, and that's conceivable soon. So uh, I think there's a little bit of urgency here. Uh, and also, you know, when, it, when a kirtan really works, it's transcendent. It, it, it goes through the exploit into a different place. Uh, if, if you've if you have experience with kirtans, you know this. So, the question is, what do we do, or what is what are the design uh, issues that we can address? And, you know, I understand this way of thinking isn't everybody's. So, uh, forgive me if I'm sort of going off on a, a soliloquy here that m may make sense to you and may not. But... You know, I'm there every week really paying attention to the sound system. And uh, Kirtan is essentially the Maha Mantra. It's a, it's a way of conveying that. You know, it's call and response uh, sharing of the Maha Mantra publicly. And uh, I started with wanting to address the sort of... Um, uh, the what what can be mayhem in in kirtans in Potomac, Maryland, uh, and that was uh, I made a spider table. It was a round table, small, that had some microphone arms in it. I think I had five, and uh, the kirtaners would sit around this table, and then the arms would allow them to adjust the microphone to their liking, and that was. Uh, later developed into something that was straight rather than round like a table. and uh, But the original one of that uh, looked, it was a cross. I mean, it really looked like a Christian cross. And so um, I had to do something about that. 
<laughs> Not that I'm sure anyone is opposed to the cross, but it's a weird, I mean, it was just seemed, it seemed out of place a little bit. Uh, especially, it, it goes on the floor. So it, it probably, you know, if people were to mistake, were to think that, oh, that's a cross. Oh, it's on the floor. What's going on here? Got to avoid those sort of things. So anyway, the third prototype of the table uh, was actually built by a devotee named Moorley. And uh, at this point, we're calling it the Moorley. And it's a way to arrange the microphones. It's a, it's a straight plank with seven microphone bases in it. And in the bases go microphone arms, and that allows everyone to sort of congregate in one place and perform the kirtan. So in my fevered imagination, uh, this table, or the Moorley, is like Luke Skywalker's X-Wing. It's like the king's black arrow that he uses to kill smog. It's like Lord Narsimhadev himself personifying the exploit of the material world. Kirtan is that important, and this is just a bit of technology to help us get toward a design, to, to solve a design problem that allows us to gather and uh, be involved in beautiful kirtans together. It's important, I think, in a religious sense and in an aesthetic sense and... Um, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways. So, this Sunday, this last Sunday, yesterday, was the first day of an experiment. And that was, after the Sunday talk, I brought out the Morley. And starting at 3 o'clock, we had a beautiful kirtan using the Morley and then um, wrapped everything up at 5 o'clock. And then uh, it got packed away. And what I'm hoping to do, my plan, is to bring out the Morley every Sunday afternoon at 3 and uh, go to 4.30 or 5 and uh, start, you know, developing a real kirtan gathering, and something that's regular. That's once a week. And um, it is experimental because I don't know, you know, how this will go, but I do hope that it develops into something. And I think it will help uh, solve a lot of communication issues. Not that there, there's bad communication issues, but it will, it will foster communication if we get together once a week and, and, and work on this, work on beautiful kirtans, uh, it's probably important to say that uh, uh, I, I personally am not interested in star power. There, there are some beautiful, wonderful, incredible kirtaniers uh, who, uh, you know, I really hope come and use the... Uh, the Morley. Uh, but I'm also very interested in young people who are just getting their feet under them, 
with this uh, kirtan thing and leading kirtans and playing murdangas and harmonium. And I want this to be a forum uh, to learn, to develop a new generation of uh, up-and-coming kirtaneers and, while doing that, also becoming more appealing to society at large and um, taking this kirtan as far as possible. Now, I'm not a kirtaneer. I don't sing. I'm just doing the engineering part. But it, I think it helps a lot for kirtaneers to know that there's an engineer who's working for them, who wants to know what they need, who's, who makes sure that there's a microphone there for them already set up, that they feel like it's important, that kirtans are not a slapdash affair, but are an essential cornerstone of worshiping God. You know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. So um, it will be very interesting to see what comes of this. And I'm, I'm looking forward to trying it. And uh, yeah, should be, it should be quite interesting. And, um, and I certainly invite anyone in the area to, to come on a, on a Sunday afternoon. I think, I think the goal is, you know, is to develop this. First, to learn how to use the Murley and to see how it can be improved. And also, after things develop uh, and we've got a good system down, things are going smoothly, uh, our level of expertise is rising, then uh, maybe we can look at doing Friday nights and maybe we can look at doing Saturday nights. So, you know, these, these kirtan gatherings should be going on all the time. And another thing to be aware of and to think about is the value of other people in the area who do kirtans who aren't ISKCON. This effort is to not be the only people offering kirtan gatherings in the Washington, D.C. area. The goal is to be one node in a network of kirtaneers who are performing in various places, worshiping uh, in various venues at various times. We want to contribute to that whole, in my opinion, we want to contribute and be a part of that whole. We in no way want to draw away from other people's gatherings. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention is Harinam and the importance of Harinam. And this whole Kirtan project will be a success. And this will, is how we'll measure its success is do more people go out on Harinam more enthusiastically. Uh, and so we'll sort of see how that goes. So I don't know if that's what you were expecting when you started listening to this podcast, but as far as where I'm at, what I'm doing at the temple, um, you know, it's very important, I feel, to, to record the sound in the temple room, make it as good as possible, and now I'm using the Morley to develop a culture of kirtan at the temple. 
Now, it may sound when I say that like I have illusions of grandeur. I do not. Um, I would just like to see this happen, personally. And uh, as they say, if Krishna wants it, he'll make it happen. So uh, I'm curious to see whether or not Krishna wants this. And so currently, that's what I'm doing at the temple. Uh, that's why I'm there. I want this kirtan to spread, and I think it really does exploit a flaw, almost an error in the construct of the material world. And um, we can increase its popularity. We can increase the participation. We can increase our expertise, uh, our presentation. We can do all these things. And that's what I'd like to work on in 2018. As for the podcast, I do hope to continue. And uh, yeah, it's been so fulfilling in many ways that I think it would be sort of uh, foolish to give it up. I am running into a little bit of um, uh, just scheduling issues as far as time. And so um, hopefully it won't become an issue of, of just not having enough time to, to uh, you know, present a nice podcast. But we'll, we'll see how that goes. So um, I guess that's really what I wanted to say. And I wanted you to have some insight into who this guy is who's doing this podcast. And, you know, I'd like to say, uh, think about 2018. We're halfway through the first month. Uh, what would we like to do as a community in uh, the coming year? What would we like to accomplish? How can we attend more kirtans? How can we do kirtans better so that people think, well, I could watch the football game today, or I could go to the kirtan. I'm definitely going to the kirtan. That's way more fun. That should be what people think. And we can get there. And we will get there, I think, I believe. So anyway, uh, I also want to thank everyone I've talked to uh, who's been on the podcast. Uh, it's been very good for me. I appreciate all of your time. Uh, thank you for putting up with my uh, sometimes obnoxious questions. Uh, I do try to be honest. I, I don't want to pretend I'm feeling or, or experiencing things that I'm not. Um, but uh, there is no question that I deeply, deeply value my time among the Hare Krishna community in Potomac, Maryland. Thank you, and I'll see you soon. Thanks to Rico Hayes for the theme music, and to Miriam Lansky for discussions about how to approach the subject matter of the podcast. I'm Michael Scherer, and you've been listening to Questions for the Sages. Questions for the Sages.